Why is biblical interpretation important? All one needs to do is sift through the pages of church history. Filled with illustrious examples of service unto all humanity, it also contains atrocities upon mankind, all committed in the name of Christ using the Bible as a weapon of justification. A flat, unilateral reading of Scripture in disregard for the superiority of the self-sacrificial enemy love taught by Jesus has often resulted in the projection of a God fashioned after the image and likeness of man, one that is self-serving and used for personal gain. Embedded within the margins of the past, we are confronted with a dark side of church history that is indisputable and one that needs to be confronted for what it is. At the end of the 11th century, Pope Urban II of the Roman Empire called on Western Christians to take up arms in an attempt to recapture the Holy Land, which was under Muslim control. This sparked a series of religious wars and the beginning of eight major crusade expeditions between 1096 and 1291. This violent campaign accumulated an estimated death toll somewhere between 1 to 3 million. The chronicler Raymond of Aguilars described the scene when a band of crusaders massacred both Muslims and Jews in Jerusalem in 1099. Quote, Wonderful things were to be seen. Numbers of the Saracens were beheaded. Others were shot with arrows or forced to jump from the towers. Others were tortured for several days, then burned with flames. In the streets were seen piles of heads and hands and feet. One rode about everywhere amid the corpses of men and horses. In the temple of Solomon, the horses waded in the blood up to their knees, nay, up to the bridle. It was a just and marvelous judgment of God that this place should be filled with the blood of unbelievers. End of quote. Early modern Europe experienced a widespread panic and heightened sensitivity to superstition in relation to moral behavior. In the minds of modern Europeans, there was a real fear that satanic witches were operating as an organized threat to Christendom between the 15th and 18th centuries. Those who were found guilty of witchcraft were often tortured, flogged, fined, even exiled. The rest were burned at the stake, hanged, or beheaded. Their justification was Exodus chapter 22, verse 18, Thou shalt not permit a witch to live. Even within the New England colonies, Puritans conducted witch hunts and trials, which would become known as the Salem Witch Trials. Most scholars estimate the total number executed for witchcraft somewhere between 40,000 and 60,000. According to James A. Hott, Quote, During the 1400s, the Holy Inquisition shifted its focus toward witchcraft, and the next three centuries witnessed a bizarre orgy of religious delusion. Agents of the church tortured untold thousands of women and some men into confessing that they flew through the sky on demonic missions, engaged in sex with Satan, turned themselves into animals, made themselves invisible, and performed other supernatural evils. Virtually all the accused were put to death. End of quote. Christopher Columbus, whose name means the Christ bearer, credited the motivation for his voyage to the new world to God himself. In his diaries, he writes, quote, It was the Lord who put into my mind, I could feel his hand upon me, the fact that it would be possible to sail from here to the Indies. 
There is no question that the inspiration was from the Holy Spirit because he comforted me with rays of marvelous illumination from the Holy Scriptures. End of quote. There were an estimated 10 million natives living north of Mexico at the time of his arrival in the Americas. When Christopher Columbus and his men arrived, the natives ran to greet them and brought them food, water, and gifts. Columbus would later write, quote, The Indians are so naive and so free with their possessions that no one who has not witnessed them would believe it. When you ask for something they have, they never say no. To the contrary, they offer to share with anyone. End of quote. Within a generation of Columbus Landing, it's estimated that only 5 to 10% of the entire American Indian population remained. According to historian Howard Zinn, quote, Columbus sent expedition after expedition into the interior. They found no gold fields, but had to fill up ships returning to Spain with some kind of dividend. In the year 1495, they went on a great slave raid, rounded up 1,500 Arawak men, women, and children, put them in pens guarded by Spaniards and dogs, then picked the 500 best specimens to load onto ships. Of those 500, 200 died en route. The rest arrived alive in Spain and were put up for sale by the archdeacon of the town, who reported that although the slaves were naked as the day they were born, they showed no more embarrassment than animals. Columbus later wrote, quote, Let us in the name of the Holy Trinity go on sending all the slaves that can be sold. End of quote. The Indian population of 10 million that lived north of Mexico when Columbus came would ultimately be reduced to less than a million. Harvard historian Samuel Elliott Morrison, in his popular book Christopher Columbus, Mariner, writes about his enslavement and murder. Quote, the cruel policy initiated by Columbus and pursued by his successors resulted in complete genocide. End of quote. And yet, here is how Morrison sums up his view of Columbus in his book. Quote, He had his faults and his defects, but they were largely the defects of the qualities that made him great. His indomitable will, his superb faith in God and in his own mission as the Christ-bearer to the lands beyond the seas, his stubborn persistence despite neglect, poverty, and discouragement. But there was no flaw, no dark side to the most outstanding and essential of all his qualities, his seamanship. End of quote. In 1607, the British settled permanently, initially at Jamestown, Virginia, where Sir Walter Cope would describe what they had found. Quote, a land that promises more than the land of promise. Instead of milk, we find pearl. Gold instead of honey. End of quote. The Virginia Charter of 1606 provides insight into the mindset of some of the early settlers. Quote, By the evidence of God Almighty, hereafter tends the glory of His divine majesty in propagating of Christian religion to such people as yet live in darkness and miserable ignorance of the true knowledge and worship of God, and may in time bring the infidels and savages living in those parts to humane civility and to a settled and quiet government. End of quote. The question for the early Puritans becomes what are they to do with the infidels and savages that do not wish to be governed? 
William Berkeley, one of Virginia's early governors, came up with the idea of massacring all the men, then selling all the women and children into slavery to cover the cost of the exterminations. In May of 1637, several hundred recent Connecticut Valley settlers led by English Captain John Mason, formerly of Boston's Dorchester Settlement, surprised and torched a Pequot village while its warriors were absent. The Puritans surrounded the village and shot hundreds of women, old men, and children attempting to escape the flames. An eyewitness account of that horror reads, quote, It was a fearful sight to see them thus frying in the flames, and horrible was the stink and scent thereof. But the victory seemed a sweet sacrifice, and they gave the praise thereof to God, who had wrought so wonderfully for them. End of quote. John Mason wrote back to Dorchester that God had, quote, laughed at his enemies and the enemies of his people, making them as a fiery oven, end of quote. As feared, the majority of the slain were women and children, but as John Underhill, Mason's commander, noted, quote, Sometimes the scripture declareth women and children must perish with their parents. And indeed such a dreadful terror did the Almighty let fall upon their saints, that they would fly from us and run into the very flames, where many of them perished. And God was above them, who laughed his enemies and the enemies of his people to scorn, making them as a fiery oven. Thus were the stout-hearted spoiled, having slept their last sleep. Thus did the Lord judge among the heathen, filling the place with dead bodies. Thus was God seen crushing the enemies of his people, burning them up in the fire of his wrath, and dunging the ground with their flesh. It was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes. End of quote. Prior to the attack on the Pequot village, several colonists expressed moral concerns, so they reached out to their chaplain, Reverend John Stone. Reverend Stone spent the night in prayer and in the morning reported that God was, quote, clearing the title, end of quote, for his chosen people to possess America. The next day, the armed colonists attacked the Pequot and 700 men, women, and children were killed in the span of an hour. Captain John Mason described the slaughter in these words. The Puritans of Massachusetts had no qualms about killing Indians. They had left England during the Thirty Years' War, had absorbed the militancy of that fearsome time, and justified their violence by a highly selective reading of the Bible. Ignoring Jesus' pacifist teachings, they drew on the velocity of some of the Hebrew scriptures. God is an excellent man of war, preached Alexander Layton, and the Bible the best handbook on war. Their reverend minister, John Cotton, had instructed them that they could attack the natives without provocation, a procedure normally unlawful, because they had not only a natural light to their territory, but a special commission from God to take their land. End of quote. When some colonists questioned the morality of the slaughter, saying, Shouldn't Christians have more mercy and compassion? Mason responded thus, I would refer you to David's wars. Sometimes the scripture declares that women and children must perish. We had sufficient light from the word of God for our proceedings. End of quote. The British Puritans viewed the decimation of tribe after tribe from disease as being an integral part of God's active support for their new colonies. For instance, the governor of Massachusetts Bay Colony noted after an epidemic of smallpox in 1634 that the British settlers had been largely unharmed, but, quote, 
For the natives, they are near all dead of smallpox, so as the Lord hath cleared our title to what we possess. End of quote. In the end, for the Puritans, the way in which they were to remain a civilized, godly community was to eradicate those who were not. Quote, when the Puritans negotiated the Treaty of Hertford in 1638, with the few Pequot survivors, they insisted on the destruction of all Pequot villages and sold the women and children into slavery. Should Christians have behaved more compassionately, asked Captain John Underhill, a veteran of the Thirty Years' War. He answered his rhetorical question with a decided negative. God supported the English, so we had sufficient light for our proceedings. End of quote. In other words, God is on our side if he gives us victory, an idea perhaps borrowed from Israel's own history. Historically, Slavery was practiced in every ancient Middle Eastern society as an integral part of commerce, taxation, and temple religion. It is very clear within the New Testament that slavery was a basic part of the social and economic structure. Many of the early Christians were slaves. Though there seems to be no outright denunciation of slavery, there is a clear theological trajectory which begins with Jesus but is carried out by the apostles and then the church down through the ages. Augustine describes slavery as, quote, being against God's intention and resulting from sin. John Chrysostom described slavery as the fruit of covenantness, of degradation, of savagery, the fruit of sin, and of human rebellion against our true Father. Gregory of Nyssa went even further and stated opposition to all slavery as a practice. During the 18th and 19th centuries, an abolition movement began among Christians, which sparked heated debates and divisions among different denominations. Both the supporters of slavery as well as those who opposed slavery used passages from the Bible to support their view. George Whitfield was probably the most famous religious figure of the 18th century, one of the founders of Methodism and Evangelicalism, and primarily known for his series of revivals known as the Great Awakenings. Whitfield advocated for fair treatment of slaves by their slave owners, although his view on slavery was very conflicted. Quote, he, speaking of Whitfield, believed that slaves were human but subordinate creatures. End of quote. When Whitfield experienced financial trouble at his orphanage in Georgia in 1747, he attributed the difficulty to Georgia's prohibition of slavery, arguing that it was impossible for the inhabitants to survive without the use of slaves. Whitfield campaigned for the legislation of slavery from 1748 to 1750. Slavery was legalized in 1751. Whitfield saw the legalization of slavery as part personal victory and part divine will. Whitfield, moving forward, would argue there was a scriptural justification for slavery, and according to Boyd Schlinter, would become, quote, perhaps the most energetic and conspicuous evangelical defender and practitioner of slavery, end of quote. Many other church leaders supported slavery using the Bible. Here is an example from Reverend John Henry Hopkins. Quote, if it were a matter to be determined by my personal sympathies, tastes, or feelings, I would be as ready as any man to condemn the institution of slavery. For all my prejudices of education, habit, and social position stand entirely opposed to it. But as a Christian, I am solemnly warned not to be wise in my own conceit and not to lean unto my own understanding. As a Christian, I am compelled to submit my weak and erring intellect to the authority of the Almighty. 
For then only can I be safe in my conclusion, when I know that they are in accordance with the will of him whose tribunal I must render a strict count to the last great day. First, when we ask what the divine Redeemer said in reference to slavery, and the answer is perfectly undeniable, he did not allude to it at all. Not one word of censure upon the subject is recorded by the evangelist who gave his life and doctrines to the world. Yet slavery was in full existence at the time throughout Judea, and the Roman Empire, according to the historian Gibbon, contained 60 millions of slaves on the lowest probable computation. How prosperous and united would our glorious republic be at this hour if the eloquent and pertinacious disclaimers against slavery had been willing to follow their Savior's example. End of quote. This interpretive approach to Scripture is quite common throughout history. Reverend Hopkins, like so many others through the ages, including those mentioned in this blog, have decided to disregard moral conscience in favor of a particular reading of the Bible rooted in the doctrine of original sin. As John Calvin argued, quote, For our nature is not merely bereft of good, but is so productive of every kind of evil that it cannot be inactive. That whatever is in man from intellect to will, from the soul to the flesh, is all defiled and crammed with concupiscence, or to sum it up briefly, that the whole man is in himself nothing but concupiscence. End of quote. Calvin, like so many others, believed our human nature was so evil and corrupt it could not be trusted. A belief that if one has to make a choice between our moral conscience or the Bible, one must go with Scripture since our human nature cannot be trusted. This would seem to defy the teachings of the New Testament where Jesus affirms that he was sending the Spirit of truth who will lead us into all truth, reminding us of the words that he has spoken. It would also seem to defy the teachings of Paul, who says that we have been given the mind of Christ since his Spirit has become to us the wisdom of God. On numerous occasions in the Old Testament, God is depicted as commanding the Israelites to disregard their pity and personal emotions for their own family if they turn to other gods. Deuteronomy 13, 8-9 says, But do not give in or listen. Have no pity, and do not spare or protect them. You must put them to death. Strike the first blow yourself, and then all the people must join in. How does one justify a literal interpretation and blatant disregard for moral conscience when compared to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, who says, who says this in Matthew 5, 43-48? You have heard the law that says, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Mercy upon even one's enemy is a prerequisite to truly becoming a child of God. We are to be as our Father already is, perfect. Is this a possibility? It is when you understand what the Father's definition of perfection is. In Luke's account of this sermon, in Luke chapter 6, verse 36, we're told, Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. So in other words, God's perfection lies in the fact that He is full of mercy. 
Paul believes that even pagan Gentiles not having the Bible have the capacity to obey God's law without hearing it by listening to their own moral conscience within them. Romans chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts, for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they are doing right. This passage stands directly in opposition with Reverend Hopkins' interpretation who believed his moral conscience could not be trusted when opposed to Scripture. This interpretive approach, as already discussed, can often lead to violence, racism, and even child abuse. Through the ages, leaders of the church have promoted corporal punishment upon children as a divine assignment of the parent. St. Augustine says this, quote, By the birch, the strap, the cane, the schooling which Scripture says must be given a child. End of quote. As a boy, Martin Luther was the recipient of harsh corporal punishment. Luther was beaten by his mother until the blood ran, beaten by his father until Luther ran away from home, and beaten by schoolmasters for nothing at all. The physical abuse of his boyhood initially led Luther to view God as an angry judge. A well-known evangelical minister released a book in 1995 titled Shepherding a Child's Heart, which sold millions of copies worldwide. In the book, the author suggests that the biblical method of disciplining a child should include corporal punishment as directed in Scripture. Proverbs 13.24 says this, Whoever spares the rod hates their children, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. I think it's important to note that these passages in the Old Testament, particularly Psalms and Proverbs, were written in a different age distant from our own. Should that affect the way in which we read these passages since they are still found in the Bible? It depends whether you still believe a child should still be put to death if he curses his mother or father, or whether you believe God sanctions the destruction of entire races of people, every man, woman, and child. That in some cases, God declared pregnant women shall be ripped open by swords, as in Hosea chapter 13, while Israel men should keep for themselves any young girls who were still virgins, found in Numbers chapter 31. Both of these were accepted practices in the period these passages were likely written. I would also suggest there's a better understanding of this passage in Proverbs in light of Jesus, who, according to the prophet Isaiah, is the rod that came forth from the stem of Jesse, Isaiah 11.1. 1. Since it was the shepherd's staff which was used to guide and protect the sheep, as the psalmist says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me, Psalm 23.4. For the author of Shepherding a Child's Heart, a fundamental problem begins with his interpretation of Scripture. Here's a few quotes from his book. Quote, Children are not born morally and ethically neutral. The Bible teaches that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Jeremiah 17.9 The child's problem is not an information deficit. His problem is that he is a sinner. There are things within the heart of the sweetest little baby that allowed to blossom and grow to fruition will bring about eventual destruction. The rod is given for this extremity. Punish him, a child with the rod, and save his soul from death. End of quote. In another passage, he says, quote, On many occasions, my children have seen tears in my eyes when it was time to spank them. I did not want to do it. My love for my children drove me to the task. 
I would have never spanked them had I not been persuaded by the Word of God that God called me to this task. It is not my personality. Margie and I were exposed to some teaching from the book of Proverbs that convinced us that spanking had a valid place in parenting. End of quote. Notice how the author admits that he never would have spanked his kids had the Bible not called for it. Scripture in the book of Proverbs convinced him that God's love is attached to his punishment since these passages suggest this to be the case. In another passage, he says, quote, The use of the rod is an act of faith. God has mandated its use. The parent obeys, not because he perfectly understands how it works, but because God has commanded it. The use of the rod is a profound expression of confidence in God's wisdom and the excellence of his counsel. End of quote. The author here suggests that corporal punishment of a child is an act of faith, suggesting that how it works is not important, only that we obey since we find it in the Bible, which makes it biblical. Or is it? The majority of people who practice corporal punishment on their children, including the author mentioned, would suggest that the parents should strike the buttocks in a way that does not leave permanent marks or bruises. This completely contradicts the biblical method of discipline, which consistently throughout the Old Testament calls for striking the child with a rod on the back side. While the modern methods have thankfully progressed, the biblical method calls for something much more radical. Consider two different translations of Proverbs 20:30. The blueness of a wound cleanseth away evil, so do stripes the inward parts of the belly. Lashes and wounds purge away evil, and beatings cleanse the innermost parts. Biblical interpretation matters. It's essential to how we raise our kids and live and thrive within our communities. Jesus is the lens through which we should always approach Scripture. All authority in heaven and on earth was given to the Son, not the Bible. And all of Scripture, whether taken from Old or New Testament, must always bow its knee to the authority of the God revealed in Jesus. The Bible is a faithful witness to human progress and a testament to God's commitment to reveal His character and nature going so far that He would empty Himself out in the form of a servant who embraced limitation in order to redefine humanity, reestablish His purpose, and unveil the fullness of His glory in the face of one of our own. The Bible was unable to articulate all that God had to say since it was weakened by the flesh. It's for this very reason the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, to cross the limitations of language, culture, and time.